You've been sold the idea that financial independence is all about some number on your account statement, or even worse, that you don't qualify because of where you started out. That's just not true. It's not about some well-kept secret of the wealthy. It's about finding the right information and knowing how to apply it. On the Get Ready for the Future show, we're answering your questions so you can start making real financial change today. The journey to true financial independence begins right here, and it starts with you. Here to help people discover, protect, and share true financial independence, we are rolling through another Get Ready for the Future show. We are glad to have you along. My name is Scott Inman, Janet Walker alongside as we get ready to answer your questions as we do every week on the Get Ready for the Future show. But I'm going to change things up. going to throw you a little curveball to start because I've got a question. Okay. I'm going to ask a question to start off with, and it has nothing to do with finance. As we sit here on uh, our live stream date of November 29th, we're about to turn the page on the calendar again, the final month of 2023, which is always so hard to believe for us. December, by the time you listen on podcast or radio, here in central Arkansas, which is where we are, and we want to be aware that people uh, may listen and watch in other parts of the country, maybe even the world. We, I know we have mm-hmm. a few people uh, yeah. across. So I don't know what it's like where you are, but I was driving across the 430 bridge this morning on my way into the office, and the sun was coming up over the uh, horizon, and it was shining brightly on the hills on the other side, on the Little Rock side of the bridge, and the fall colors are still popping here i mean we're it's november 29th yeah so my question is for the 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 foliage experts out there is this i mean i'm 50 years old i don't remember a time where we're about to go into december and there are still fall colors on the trees so do you want them to send an email with some answers i I would like that unless you can answer it well i can't answer it but i'll I'll give you my personal experience this year and and then we'll give uh an email for them to send you their answers on this two-way street Uh, so anyway uh my daughter is a senior in high school and so you know we're doing the whole senior pictures thing at some point in the year you have to do that and she had decided that she wanted to do fall pictures so we looked at the calendar and we talked with the photographer and she's like oh yeah fall pictures okay last weekend in october so we mark it on the calendar well actually no we marked it the week before that and then it came torrential downpour and we wound up having to move it a week later than we had and we thought we're just gonna we're gonna miss everything because that was supposed to be the peak Mm. well it wound up there wasn't hardly anything turning like we had to call uh, one of our team members here at Genwealth had some trees in his backyard that were starting to turn and we went over there and did them because the place that we had planned to go wasn't ready yet Mm. and then like a week later everything was gorgeous and here we are now almost a month from that and it's still just beautiful yeah so two-part question for people to email us with the answer is this the latest in recent memory and why I'd like to know why. There's got to yeah. be somebody out there that has a, a theory on that. You can uh, email us, show at getreadyforthefuture.com. We'd like to read the answer to that. You could also text us the answer if you have it or call and leave a voicemail, 501-381-5228. I like this. We're using our platform not only to help <laughs> others, but to for others to help us. Uh, with. We're education-driven, and Scott <laughs> yes. wants some education about leaves. Yes. What's the old <laughs> saying? Inquiring minds want to know. That's right. All right, so we're going to get into the question and answer portion. Why you're here, we start with Brent from Fayetteville. His question is, I'm 35 and still renting. I've always heard people say that renting is throwing away money, but I haven't heard that as much lately, maybe because interest rates are so high. 
what is the lost opportunity cost of delaying home ownership? What are the cons of renting for an extended period of time? Is equity still a priority in this type of high interest environment? Great question, Brent. And, you know, when you think about uh, decisions to rent or buy being based on the current interest rate environment, I think you have to be very careful on how you assess that. Yeah. Uh, I know there's a term in investing called recency bias. If you think that your high water mark on your account is great, which everybody does, then when it goes down, you go, wait, wait a minute, everything was going straight up. Why is it going down now? You don't, it's hard to remember perspective mm-hmm. in the long term. And I think the same is true, Janet, for interest rates. When we talk about interest rates being high, well, relative to what? Yeah. And Scott, you and I are of the, the same generation. And so when we were growing up, our parents had double digit interest rates yeah. that they were paying on their mortgage. I remember my grandfather, he was at the stage of life where he was earning interest instead of paying it. And I remember him sitting me down and going, honey, you got to get you one of these CDs. I'm getting 15% on mine. And so, but my dad was like, yeah, he's getting 15% and I'm paying 15%, you yep. know, because it was just where we were in the 80s. And personally, I know that we have paid as high as 7% interest. And then we were able uh, on our house that we're in now, uh, and man, we're in countdown mode to get that joker paid off, but we're not quite there yet. But anyway, on the house that we're in right now, we got in at a higher rate, but then when rates dropped, we refinanced and we're under 3%. And so it doesn't matter to me what the rates are because we're in and we've got that locked in. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think there's a lot of perspective that's necessary on that. And I think about like my parents paid the house off in the same month that I graduated from high school. And what if they had waited, you know, to to be able to take that step? What if they had waited just because interest rates were high? They had no idea when they would decrease. And in their case, the timing of this and then to be able to utilize that money to help me in college was perfect timing for them. And and what if they had not, you know, gotten into the home at the time that they did? Yeah. And if you focus too much on interest rates, it's real easy to forget the fact that homes are going to appreciate in value over time, too. So yeah. if you wait for those interest rates to decline, you're also going to be paying likely more for a house uh, in five or 10 years. Now, that may not be true for some inflated markets. We've seen housing values crash, obviously, but certainly in uh, more affordable homes, what would be considered a starter home, uh, and I guess it's debatable on whether that's even affordable anymore. There are more more people getting pushed out of that, but those are going to likely just steadily increase over time. So you're going to be paying more for your house if you wait for an in- interest rates to subside. So I don't think uh, making a decision on whether or not to buy or rent should be made solely on what interest rates are. Uh, but as you mentioned, Janet, you know, how long are you going to be making that mortgage payment and how important it is to be done before or by the time you retire? Now, yeah. you know, you, we don't know how old, oh yeah, we, he did tell us 35. So if he's going to plan to buy this and is, it, it is his forever home, or there's going to be a, a way that he purchases a home in the future that doesn't increase that length of mortgage, you know, 30 years if he does a 30-year mortgage, that puts him at 65. So you don't want to keep waiting very yeah. well for a long time. And, and we are advocates of a shorter time period, but just to use the typical you know, 30-year time uh, that a lot of people get, then uh, that's, that's something that you do need to be very aware of the time period. Scott, another thing you and I talked about on this is all the stuff, that's the technical term, right? All mm-hmm. the stuff that you need when you get a house. Yeah. And 
So I, I would ask you, Brent, what type of renter you are. And what I mean by that is when I was in college, I had an apartment and I didn't have to do anything inside or outside the apartment as far as maintenance or lawn care or anything like that. I then went to a duplex, same deal. I wasn't responsible for any of that. And then I went to a house and it was like, I need a lawnmower. I need a garden hose. I need a shovel. Daddy, do you have an extra shovel I can borrow? You know, like everything. And I, I was kind of joking with you, Scott. It was like, it, you almost need a, a housewarming shower because you need all the stuff that people give when you get married. But it was like, I don't have the husband, but I did get the house. Can I get some stuff? You know, and so there, there is a lot to budget for in that process. Um, another type of renting, though, my in-laws did this for a long time. They were renting a house where they were responsible for all of those things. And so they had all the stuff. They had all the tools and you know, they were responsible for lawn care. And so to switch from renting in that capacity to buying a home, the only difference is that you're on the mortgage. Um, but it really depends on, you know, what it, you've really just got to think about all the factors in terms of your expenses. And Brent, you've heard us likely, if you've listened to the show much at all, use uh, use the phrase, it is not about the economy, but your economy. And I think that's really where we probably should end this question is because it is your personal situation that should dictate if you buy, are you prepared to buy for all the reasons that we, we uh, outline here? And if you are prepared to buy, how much house can you really afford? Because that's really where the interest rate really matters, right? It's going to matter on that mortgage payment. It is going to be likely that you can afford less house than you could two years ago, but you must, you must have a down payment ready to get the mortgage rate where it's tolerable because you don't want to be paying so much of your income on housing that you can't afford to do other things. And from our perspective, the main thing there is saving for retirement. Yeah, absolutely. So just just be aware and kind of look at what your situation is and make the decision from there. If you've got questions for us on the Get Ready for the Future show, you can call or text them to us at 501-381-5228 to hear your question answered on the air or send us an email to show at getreadyforthefuture.com. And there is one other way we can throw in. If you're watching on live stream, you can always uh, throw us a comment there or on Facebook. We've gotten a couple that way as well. All right, next up on the show, it's Mary Ann sending in a text, and her question is, my mom is 62, and I'm 32. I'm afraid she will be forced to live with me, and she's not at all financially independent and doesn't make good choices with her money. Any advice for her and her hoping to be financially independent one day daughter, that's me, should I save more than 25%, how should I prepare? Obviously, there's a lot of moving parts to that, and I think ultimately where we'd fall there, Janet, would be that you both need a financial plan, and you can have one at 62, and you certainly can have one at 32, and they may not look the same, but as we walk down this path, I think it's important to really set some, I would say, almost boundaries it, yeah. on, on what exactly yeah. are we talking about when, when we're talking about the potential of mom living with daughter. I think I would start with encouraging some really good communication between the two of you and just being very open. Uh, there's something I refer to as, as, I call it not fighting fair. When you're upset about something, and, and she doesn't indicate that here, but so just generally talking, but if somebody is upset and they don't communicate what they're upset about or what they're concerned about, but they're, it just continues to build internally, that's not fighting fair because you haven't communicated what it is that you're upset about. So 
the the same concept here that if you are concerned about having to support your mom then those conversations need to start soon today mm-hmm. would be a great day to start that and then you know uh, the the difference between different ways of supporting your mom um for example it, we've got an extra bedroom at our house and we have always since we built the home we have always referred to that as the grandma room yeah we have not had one of our moms, the, the grandmothers of our children, we've not ever had a need for one of them to live there, but we we literally set the room up in how we built it, including that it's like uh, wheelchair accessible, all of those things. We built it with that in mind. That would be very different than if a, a mom uh, were not able to make their mortgage payment or their rent payment, and we're having to write a check for their house payment that they can't afford on their own. If they live in my home, I'm not having to shell out that extra money. Now, the utility bill may go up a little bit, but it's not going to go up by a mortgage payment. And so if you want to help your mom and you have a good enough relationship to be under one roof, and that is very important, um, we we joked about them. My dad knew this. He's been gone for several years, but we never called it the grandpa room. Yeah. My dad was not going to live under the same roof. <laughs> it, it would not have been okay. Our relationship was better under different roofs, and that was the deal, and we all understood that. So just think about how how can this happen where you're able to help your mom but also not destroy your future financial independence in the process. Yeah, we did the same thing with, with my parents, and they're still living uh, independently right now, but we would always joke, you know, my previous home we had a basement. Yeah. And I told him I was going to stick him in the basement. That, that, <laughs> that was the place. But, you know, yeah. that, that wasn't it wasn't the ideal place right. because there were stairs and not a lot of windows. But there's you, a roof. You don't want to yeah. stick your parents in the basement. But now we've actually got a pool house. So they've upgraded. Right? There they, you go. They, they've got a better place uh, to stay in the new home. But, yeah, I think that matters. I mean, you know, if you think about mom, I, I, we do need to zero in the on the part of the question that Marianne says that her mom doesn't make good choices with her money because I think that's where yeah, we probably attack. Key. Um, if she's 62, then she's Social Security age, potentially. We don't know what kind of Social Security benefits she has. But if you're talking about moving mom in under the roof and not have to really pay a whole lot more expenses for that part, then certainly I would think the Social Security check could help pay the food expense, some yes. of the other expenses. And maybe there's a, a hybrid way that you could do this, or not really a hybrid way, but a, a, a layering way maybe to do this so where it's not really that much of a financial burden. It- And I would encourage you, this is going to sound weird. It doesn't sound like a mother-daughter relationship, but I'm just going to say, if you get to the point where you're doing something like what you just mentioned, Scott, where like your mom needs to contribute her social security check in order to make this work, put it in writing because people forget. And we have seen loving families be not so loving Mm -hmm. and, and really be greatly divided over things that they just remember differently. Mm -hmm. It's not that they're trying to do the other person wrong. They just have a different memory and didn't put it on paper on purpose originally. So if you're going to get into some financial arrangement, I I do think it's important to write that out. So let's focus a little bit on the part about uh, mom not making good choices with her money. I think that's where some value could come into play by reaching out to a financial advisor mm-hmm. and let's get this thing straightened out. Let's make some better choices with your money. And I know at 62, it may not seem like there's a whole lot of time to make uh, sizable differences in where you are when you actually ultimately retire, but I think there are. I mean, I think that you can obviously yeah. attack some debt 
if that's if that's a big issue, uh, create a budget. If you're spending too much of your disposable income uh, on some frivolous things and could redirect towards saving. And I think, Janet, you had a great point, too, when we were discussing this in our uh, in our planning meeting. There's even some potential to create some guaranteed income with a different job. Yeah, uh, that's something my my mother-in-law did. Uh, Both of my in-laws worked at a a factory, if anybody remembers the Sanyo days over in Forest City long, long time ago, and they shut down. And so it was like, okay, your jobs are gone. Now what? And she was able to go back to school for a period of time, and she wound up working for the state, which put her in a position to have a pension income when she retired. She worked, you know, well into her 70s and, you know, just continued to work longer. So there came a point when she was collecting Social Security and still working. Um, But that that pension and Social Security combination made all the difference in the world. And at 62, if if your mom is not, you know, already in a job that creates a pension, we're not going to have a huge pension by the time she retires, whenever that might be. But even a few hundred dollars of mm-hmm. additional guaranteed income is a difference maker in the future. So that's that's just another possibility to consider. If mom's health is still good at 62, you know, that doesn't mean she's at retirement age right now. I mean, you could right. potentially work a lot longer than maybe you guys are having discussions about uh, even into the, your 70s. And, you know, I've got one client that doesn't want to stop working and she's still in good health and she's over 80. Right. Yeah, and and yeah. they are starting to talk about with uh, with her kids, you know, what, what does that look like after? And then the other thing we don't know about Marianne is that we don't know if she's married and she has kids and, you know, what her financial obligations are. Certainly don't want to neglect that. And essentially what you're becoming uh, in that, what we call the sandwich generation, mm-hmm. where you're starting to still have kids at home potentially, but also have to start looking at taking care of your parents, whether that's physically or uh, financially, if that's something that's on your radar, you are essentially going to have to look at that like you are now the parent. You know, I know that's kind of hard because you do look at, you're never going to look at your parent and think I'm the parent in this relationship. It's hard to do. But I think when it comes back to that boundary discussion that we were talking about, you, you really do have to treat it as if you, you're the parent in that situation. And, and maybe you need to say it differently to yourself. You're the decision maker. There you go. You know, you, you, I, I agree, Scott, you would struggle with calling yourself the parent, but but you are the one, if you're the one who's financially responsible between the two, then you are the decision maker with regard to finances. Thank you very much for that question. Uh, if you have questions for us on the Get Ready for the Future show, once again, call or text them to 501-381-5228. We also receive emails at show at getreadyforthefuture.com. Anything that's on your mind. We're, we're obviously uh, tapping into some non-investment related discussions today with uh, questions about renting versus buying. Uh, when is it When is it a good time to do that? And then potentially having to move mom in. So uh, some real world financial questions uh, that we're discussing today. But now we're going to get into the investment side with Shane from Little Rock. Our next question is up. Can you comment on the difference between a money market and a money market mutual fund? What are the pros and cons and which one should we have? Shane, thanks very much for that. Uh, we actually had a weeks ago a similar question Mm -hmm. on this but they are becoming so popular now the money market mutual funds that it's certainly worth revisiting so let's step into that first of all if you take a look at a money market account because they are confused a lot i think with our clients when we are discussing this because uh, we are using uh, a money market mutual fund more than we have in the past because of interest rates being where they are but uh, many people hear money market and they think of their savings account right because many banks offer a money market account 
and you put cash savings in there, it draws an interest rate. The uh, principal is protected, and you'll get that little, little bit of interest rate, a little bit of yield on your account. So a money market account is different than a money market mutual fund because a money market account is bank offered, completely liquid. You're going to be able to tap that anytime that you want to pull it over to your checking. Obviously, you can do that on apps these days. It doesn't take very much time at all to access it. The interest rate is dependent upon the bank. Now, it's going to be tied mm -hmm. more than likely to whatever the Federal Reserve uh, base rate is, but that interest rate can vary from bank to bank, as you probably have had experience, and it often requires, Janet, a minimum balance. So let's contrast that now with a money market fund. With a money market fund, they're going to invest in, in low-risk assets. So things like treasury bonds, CDs, short-term high-quality corporate bonds, they're, they're going to have maturities of less than a year, so it's a short-term instrument. Um, corporate bonds, short maturity, high quality, uh, short-term future of corporations is, is pretty predictable in the short term, so that makes them feel a little bit more secure about the future of this type of investment. And they're looking at the capital strength of the corporation. How strong are they? Treasury bonds, uh, you know, the gold standard for safety. So there's a there. What you're looking at here is a lot of stability, but there's a little bit more going on in the money market fund than in a money market account. And um, they've got a fixed price of a dollar per share that's going to stay constant. Um, you do need to understand that it's not FDIC insured. Yep. And there's not a guarantee. So there, there are some differences to consider. But I think, Scott, we would, we would draw people's attention more to the question of, is this the type, whether we're talking about a money market account or yeah. a money market fund, is this the type of place that you need to put your dollars? The answer is sometimes yes and sometimes no, right. because it depends on what the purpose of those dollars is. So as an example, if you're talking about something short term, that it's more of a savings instrument or savings purpose for those dollars as opposed to longer term as an investment purpose. And we would usually draw that line at about a five-year time period. So if it's less than five years, okay, this is a savings vehicle. If it's more than five years, we tend to look more into investment vehicles. And so that that's where we would draw away from something like this and look at something that's more growth oriented. But like you said, Scott, right now the rates are, are looking, you know, pretty attractive. Yeah. And that's why people continue to ask about such things. Yeah. And overall, and the, one of the main reasons we would say it's not wise to put your long term investments into a money market mutual fund or money market account is because over the long term, it's not likely to outpace inflation. Right. Now, right now, we are in a very unusual time yeah. where it is. Uh, many of those accounts are yielding around 5% when the inflation rate has now dipped to 3 mm -hmm. So it is that's partially why it's very attractive right now. But over a long period of time, that is not likely to happen. So let's kind of address the second part of Shane's question, which you've already started to do. Which one should we have? We've laid out the pros and cons between the two of them. I think the better yield is in the money market mutual fund but the better question on which one would she ha would we have uh, is basically we need to probably spend some time answering the question of what type of money are we talking about and we've already kind of gotten down that road but if you break this down and assume on one hand if Shane is very young and is investing for retirement then certainly you wouldn't want your retirement dollars uh, in a money market mutual fund you would want them in more of a growth investment strategy but if Shane is nearing retirement, I think that starts to look a little bit different. You do still need short-term savings. 
emergency fund in something that has no risk to principal. But you still have to believe in equities, even in retirement. So when yeah. you think about that, and people get this uh, mentality uh, or struggle to basically grasp this mentality that retirement is not a stop sign when it comes to your investment strategy. You know, you've been growing, growing, growing in that 401k, and you, you have a tendency to want to come to a screeching halt uh, when you reach that retirement date. With a portion of your assets that you intend to utilize as income in the near term, yes, a money market mutual fund might make sense because you don't want risk to principal or much risk to principal on money that you're going to be using in the near term, as Janet outlined, five years or less. But as you step out and allocate those dollars past that, Janet, then you do still have to take on some risk, some growth uh, opportunity because you have to battle the other risks that you're facing in retirement. Yeah, I, I have. I've worked with clients over the years who are just wired for worst case scenarios. So, uh, you know, I if I get into something that is really conservative, then I know what I'm going to get and, it, and it'll be okay. But like you said, over the long haul, then they're not going to keep up with inflation. And so I would I would discourage people who are kind of wired that way and would would really lean into money markets, whether again, whether it's a money market fund or a money market account, they would really lean into those types of instruments in this time period. You've got to step back and look at the big picture mm-hmm. because you know, five percent sounds fabulous right now, but if over, you know, the decades between now and the last paycheck that you need in life, over that time period, if you need to be making eight percent or more and you're getting five percent, it doesn't sound like a big difference. But but eight percent is sixty percent more than five percent. Mm-hmm. And so that is a game changer potentially in in what you're what you're doing with these dollars that are going to in the future create your retirement income. So just to kind of reiterate and draw that out, you think of what you saved in your investments for retirement as one big pie, right? Or one big pot. And the idea here is to break those out into buckets that are allocated for specific time frames of your retirement. Now, we don't suggest you do that alone because that's the first question I would think about is like, well, how much do I put in each bucket? Well, that's where uh, the planning process can be very helpful, especially with a financial advisor that plans, uh, that builds retirement income plans as we do here at GenWealth. Uh, and that's what we do. We create, yeah. uh, we use software to create a, an investment strategy that to the dollar puts the the amounts into the buckets with different investment strategies for each of them. You know, just to be very transparent, our advisors even love that we do that because it, it takes a lot of pressure off of the decision that we it would normally have in the rest of our industry that advisors have of how much money are we going to put in what. Well, if you don't have something that tells you how much and why, then it's just, you know, the pick of the day and what you're deciding to do. There is as much science behind this as as there is art to planning. And when you're putting together a financial plan for somebody, there is a lot of science and math and fact in the reason that we're choosing to utilize the numbers that we do. So it, it is it is not at all random uh, in how we do those numbers. Shane, thanks very much for that question. Our next question and final question on the show today comes from Sandra in Malvern. My husband and I, 53 and 55, have the same goals, but he hates talking about finances. I don't know how to continue to make sure we're on the same page 
or if we're making progress for that matter, if we don't talk about it? What can I do to best make us ready for what's ahead? Any advice you have for having those conversations with someone who despises them? Thanks, and I love the show, Sandra. Thanks very much. Not terribly uncommon. The hate part, maybe, especially <laughs> it, was, it was in all caps. Yeah. <laughs> so we definitely know it's bad. Uh, you know, the first thing I would say is you do have to talk about it. So yeah. I think you're you're right on. How do you know if you're making progress? How do you know where you're going if you don't talk about it? She does say, Janet, that they do have the same goals. Yeah. So there has been some discussion, at least off the financial side, about what they want to achieve. And I think that's good. And that's a good starting point. Yeah. So we don't really know what those goals are, whether it's the timeline at which you want to retire or where you want to live or if you want to travel, those types of things. But the fact that you have have discussed those goals and that you have the same goals gives you a basis to now go, okay, in order to achieve those goals, we have to have some degree of a financial plan to work towards those. So it does give you a, a foundation of the conversation. And I would just, um, since this, this came from a female talking about her husband struggling with, you know, he doesn't want to talk about finances, I would look at this from the wife's perspective, first of all, and just say, you know, most of us as women are seeking security. And most men are wired to protect and to provide. And it's probably important to him that you feel secure. If that is the case, if you can kind of check those boxes on, yes, I need security. Yes, he knows that. And yes, he wants me to have that and feel secure. Then I think that's the basis of the conversation. It is not, honey, would you please sit down and talk about money? Like, you don't ever want to talk about this and we've got to do it. It's not um, bullying him into the conversation. It is asking him and letting him understand how important this is to you and asking him if he would, for you, have this conversation because it will cause you to feel more secure about your finances. We talked about at the open uh, of the question how common this tends to be. You know, we think about a meeting room. It is very common for one spouse to really be involved more on the financial side than the other. I would even say, because studies have shown number one of the number one reasons for divorce is arguments about money. Yeah. There's a reason that they've made it that far, right? That they've made it through 30 years of marriage to retirement because one has deferred to the other oftentimes. That makes perfect sense. And I think the first thing I would say about that is it is okay that their involvement is different that there's yeah. a different level of involvement for one over the other. But there is, I think, a basic level of understanding that both spouses need to have to be able to reach their goals. It doesn't have to be the same, but there is a basic level, I think, that they have to meet. And I think that's where the value of a financial advisor comes in. I know that we say that a lot, but it's true. You have really a third party involved mm -hmm. in this that should be objective, right? That can tell you the facts of the case. You have a lot of emotions when it comes to money, how you should spend it, how you should save it, how, sh how you should invest it, when you're going to retire, all of those things. You can have disagreements. That's fine. But I think the reality is a lot of the time, Janet, when we're in a room in an initial appointment with clients, we are 
in the role of counselor yeah. as much as we are anything. It, we we do a significant amount of marriage counseling because <laughs> it deals with money all the yeah. time. Um, I, I think about another uh, just thought process on this, and Sander hasn't indicated how the two of them are wired as far as uh, borrowing Dave Ramsey's terms about the nerd and the free spirit. Mm-hmm. It, it's funny how many uh, couples are one of each. <laughs> so uh, we don't know if you're both nerds or both free spirits or, or what the case may be. I have a feeling that it least you have the the nerd element in you in terms of planning for your financial future um but i would even uh utilize some of those materials that they put out about how to have those conversations and one of the things that uh that they recommend is that when the two parties get together that the one who has very little interest in the finance that they make one change it doesn't even matter what it is, and you've got to be okay with it. But if they make one change, then they're more involved in it. And that might be part of this, too, that that he has to have some ownership of the finances. And if you've been the one who's handled it all the way along, then that may be very difficult to walk into. So maybe a meeting with an advisor once a year and then quarterly for the two of you to touch base on a very short conversation. Is it possible for somebody to be both the nerd and the free spirit? I think you're probably I a pretty am. good example of that. I, I, I really I do. Uh, <laughs> and my husband and I tend to both have those yeah. uh, characteristics as well. But of course, with what I do for a living, right. you know, the the nerd takes priority. Yeah, for sure. Um, but, but we go and have fun. We travel a lot. I know that's one of your big things is yeah. travel. Yeah. yeah. I think we were supposed to have the final bell. We've blown past our time. There it is. There we go. I I didn't realize I had to call for it today. (laughs) So we've got about a minute and a half left on the show. It's time for our final thoughts. And Janet, we'll start with you. So I I think I'm just going to hang out on that last question uh, from Sandra. And and really, it also goes back to Marianne and the question she had about her mom. Um, One of the standards at GenWealth is we value good communication. And when you're talking about family dynamics, whether it's with a spouse or with a parent or with a child, I, I can't think of any uh, any topic really that causes more potential conflict than money uh, and that needs to be discussed more than money. Um, Scott, uh, there are more verses in scripture about money than any other topic. Yep. I think God knew we were going to struggle with it. And so there's a there's a whole lot there to deal with. But I think it's important to just begin to have that good communication. If you need an advisor to help you along the way, we're here to do that. I'd also offer you the seven steps to financial independence. That'll be my final thought. Uh, securing financial independence. We have a free Uh, educational brochure available to you. To get it, all you have to do is text the word STEPS to 501-381-5228, or you can visit getreadyforthefuture.com forward slash steps, or you can email us. Just send us an email about anything on your mind, but also to receive our uh, handout, just send it to show at getreadyforthefuture.com. And that's all the time we have for this week's show. We thank you for being with us. Thanks for our questions. Get them in to us at 501-381-5228, and we'll see you next week. 
Thank you for listening to the Get Ready for the Future show. If you enjoy hearing from the Gen Wealth team every week, make sure and subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help us get the word out on building toward financial independence, share the podcast with your friends and family. The Gen Wealth financial team is available to you 24 7 at info at getreadyforthefuture.com or call our offices at 866 653 PLAN. That's 866 653 7526. You should personally consult a financial advisor before making any investment, and no strategy can assure success. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Independent Advisor Alliance. Independent Advisor Alliance and GenWealth Financial Advisors are separate entities from LPL Financial.